thank you for tuning in to Point of Insanity Game Studios Geekery in General Podcast. I am Al, and with me today, my friend Dawn. How are you, Dawn? I'm great. That is good, and I'm not too bad. Uh, we are recording this on Wednesday, August 10th, and Suicide Squad, a highly anticipated movie, just came out a few days ago before we've before we're recording, and I have not seen it yet. And I know you saw it. You said that you just saw it the other night. So yep. that is something that we will be discussing later, and pretty relevant to our topic as. Today we are going to talk about a fictional character who is considered probably one of the greatest villains in superhero comic history. And that is, of course, the Joker. Yes. So I know that you're a bigger comic book person than I am. So during the episode today, if Dawn and I say something that kind of contradicts each other, Go with what Dawn says because chances are that's going to be correct. Well, maybe by comic canon, you might have it more. Clo- you might have it closer to like um, animated or TV or something. Because I'm, I'll, I tend to read more comics, and you tend to watch more of the animated like <laughs> stuff than I do. So yeah, and it's just <laughs> I used to collect comics back when I was in like middle school, but eventually I I just kind of got out of it. And I think that it's appropriate to start this by talking a little bit about the history of comic books and some of the changes it's gone through. Because I think that is kind of relevant to a lot of the changes that we've seen in the character of the Joker. So there's four main ages of comic books that most, I don't know, are there comic book scholars? Oh, I'm sure there are. People (laughs) specialize in everything. (laughs) But yeah, a lot of the people who are comic book scholars or experts, I guess you could say, often divide comics into four ages. The Golden Age, which was from the late 30s to the mid-50s. The Silver Age was from the mid-50s to the 1970s. Uh, The Silver Age is the only one that really has a defining starting year, which we're going to get to in just a moment. Uh, Then there was the Bronze Age, which went from around 1970 to the mid-80s. And then right now we're in the Modern Age, which most comic people place about the mid-80s to the present day. Most people like our age that started collecting comics like when they were kids, everything we have is Modern Age, (laughs) pretty much everything. I mean, if we have stuff from like when our parents were collecting, then we're looking, you know, maybe, um, you know, maybe silver and bronze age, but pretty much everything that like I have, even like what I sometimes consider vintage from when I was a kid, all of it's still technically modern age, technically, even if it's falling apart and yeah. really in bad shape, it's yeah. still technically modern age. <laughs> yeah. Occasionally, though, you do hear the, the news story about some lucky person who was cleaning out the you know, this closet or the basement mm-hmm. or whatever, and happens to find a copy of like action comics, number one, that's in really, yeah. you know, decent condition. So, and, and of course those generally go for mad money on the secondary market, but I'm sure we might talk, maybe we'll get a little bit into comic book speculation and what happened with that later on. But for now, let's go back to the golden age, which again, most people put a late 30s. So before, you know, a little bit before World War II. And 
how would we classify a comic book? Is I mean, were comic books really around before the Golden Age, or was that when they just started becoming really popular? Well, I'm sure that there were there was always something that was being put together. You know what I mean, like in book format. But as far as um, some degree of organization to them and publisher wise, I think is that's when they were a little more organized. I'm sure. I mean, I, I guarantee there are historians on this that have a whole lot more information, but you have to look as far as like, you know, the actual publishing companies as we know, Marvel and DC and all of them like coming together as actual companies and publishing these like, like sets of books um, you know, where they have, you know, detective comics number, whatever, and all that, that we didn't really start seeing or like in Marvel's case, you know, Captain America. I mean, that didn't really start happening until World War One, you know, um, because World War Two or World War Two. You're yeah. right. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> okay. It's been that kind of week. <laughs> oh, I've been there. Yeah, it's. But uh, yeah, back to the. Back I'm to not the looking topic. at dates or anything. My brain is just kind of blurring the other. But you know what I mean. It's yes. that the whole. I was thinking Great Depression, Hitler, and all that. You, you people needed something to give them a little bit of that patriotism, which is where Captain America became really. And I don't even know if that was what his name was originally. I'm trying to remember. I never was a fan of of Cap, but. I mean, I've heard that Captain America was either heavily inspired or ripped off an earlier comic book character called the shield. That's possible. And that sounds familiar actually, but I, I mean, I can't, I can't say for sure one way or another, cause I've never been really a big fan of cap. Yeah. So, but I know that there was a lot of, you know, with the great, with, with the depression and all that and fighting the Nazis, they just really wanted something to help get people, you know, that were stuck here stateside and those obviously that were overseas fighting, give them a little bit of something extra. So it really, that's when I think everything started to really become a little more um, cohesive as far as coming together, both whether separate companies or together as, you know, it just really came together, which is why the golden age is the golden age, so to speak, phrase wise. Yeah. Cause as I recall, like the first issue of Captain America had him punching Hitler in the face and, I think that's right. Maybe. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and it was uh, it was actually common during the World War II area to have comics where you had these characters that were fighting against either Nazis or the Axis powers. And this is where we really see the birth They were of a the... social commentary. Exactly. Most comics at that time were a social commentary, far more than they are now. Yeah, and... Well, I don't know. Some of them, well, as we get to the, the Bronze Age, then, yeah, we've Silver Bronze Age area. That's where we, or not really Silver Age, but yeah, the more Bronze Age, we definitely get into a lot more social commentary, which we're going to definitely get into later. But one of the things about the comics of this time is there really weren't a lot of rules dictating comic books. So, we saw the birth of a lot of popular heroes, which are still around today. Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, uh, Green Arrow, Green Lantern, uh, Aquaman, just to name a few. And comics also would spread not only into the superhero, but they would also go to things like, you know, Western or crime or horror. So they would explore genres beyond the superhero uh, genre. Mm-hmm. 
So this was, I think it was definitely a golden age because since the publishers, they did have a lot of free reign to pretty much do what they wanted to, that gave them a lot of freedom. And I think at this time, though, comics were still considered mostly kid stuff. Though, from what I understand, and you are going into this as well, is that some of the stuff like Captain America did prove to be popular with the enlisted the enlisted men and women who were overseas. Well, the Golden Age eventually transitioned into the Silver Age, and most comic book historians put a starting year of this at 1956. And the reason we can really kind of uh, label this as a start of this particular age is because of the the Comic Code Authority. So a little bit of background. Now, the a lot of these changes were due because of a 1954 book called The Seduction of the Innocent by Frederick Wertman. So I'm sure you've probably heard about this book. Yep. And essentially, he claimed that comic books were corrupting the youth. And some of his claims, he thought that it was implied that Batman and Robin were gay. Uh, he thought that Wonder Woman was a lesbian because she was a strong, independent woman. Though, cor- correct me if I'm wrong, didn't the person who created Wonder Woman have s- some kind of like bondage thing going on? Or well, I don't know. I really didn't. I, that's one of those things I never really followed because Wonder, Wonder Woman never injured. I was so specific in my comic reading. Like, DC-wise, it was always like Batman, and that was about it. Like, I don't like Superman either. I, there's this trend. I don't like Superman. I don't like Captain America. I don't like Boy Scout characters. Yeah, so. <laughs> you like you like the bad boys, right? I, I like vigilantes and villains is really what it comes down to. <laughs> and actually, what's kind of strange, when you mention Captain or Superman, um, the Fred, uh, Frederick Wertman actually thought that Superman was un-American and a fascist. Not sure where he would get that when you consider the, the way he was portrayed back then. He also thought that crime-based comics made children want to commit crimes. And he also uh, complained about how there were comic books that would often have the advertisements for air rifles and knives and things like that. I mean, uh, do a lot of the modern comic books, do they still have advertisements inside of it? Or is that pretty much Oh, my God. Let me tell you about real quick about advertisements in comics. First of all, there are not as many in Marvel. I think Marvel's making bank. I think they're good. Yeah. But DC, first of all, they don't sell their comics for as much. A Marvel comic is average between $3.99 and $4.99 an issue. DC is usually $2.99 an issue, which I like because you get a lot of ba- you're you're getting the same amount of information. But I swear every other page is a full page advertisement <laughs> for something and it's usually merch of some kind. Like and I mean like nerd merch. Like, buy something at, like, SuperheroStuff.com. <laughs> and it's like, and it's a full-page color ad. Like, every other page. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> See, the one that I always remember is when I was in collecting comics in, like, the mid to late 80s. Sea Monkeys. Yep, the Sea Monkeys. <laughs> and they also had the one for the x-ray glasses uh, where it showed a guy looking. You know, sometimes it would show a guy looking at his hand and he could see this, his bones. And other times uh, looking at a woman and seeing her underwear. So, Oh, no. And if you remember the comics from the 80s, and I'm getting this because I'm going through all my West Coast Avengers and all my Dazzler and my Namor and stuff again. You look at me going through my 80s Marvel um, as... 
they always had like on the back page or like the second to the back page was always an advertisement for a movie that was coming out. So I've seen advertisements for like Goonies and stuff on <laughs> these old comics. Yeah, the the good old days. That right? dates them. Yep. That dates those books. You open, you flip it over, and you go, "Oh, there, I don't have to look at the date on the binding. I can see right there by the movie advertisement when this came out." Exactly, and. Another thing that he criticized is he thought that some of comics like ED Comics, they made a lot of not only crime comics, but they also did a lot of horror titles. And he, uh, you know, some of them contained gruesome images. There's one other comic story. I think it was in Weird Tales. I'm not sure exactly which comic series it was in. Have you ever heard of the comic story that came out uh, called Judgment Day? not off the top of my head okay because you know we can kind of look back at it today and think they were that was controversial but you get if we consider the time it's the 50s it's the 50s yeah. i'm not surprised by any of this but it was a story about an astronaut who was part of a galactic federation and he was part of his job was to observe these other planets to decide if they should be in if they should be allowed into the the federation and there was this one planet he discovered that was inhabited by robots. Some of the robots were blue, others were orange. And he noticed that robots of a specific color had more rights and more privileges than the robots of the other color. Can you kind of see where this is going? Yeah, it's Tumblr in 1954. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the comic, this astronaut, he's like, well, okay, they you know, because of the the behavior of this planet, we, you know, really shouldn't, you know, allow them into the, the Federation and the, you know, he's talking, I forgot the exact verbiage he uses, but he removes his helmet and guess what skin color he is? Uh-oh. Yeah. African-American. So, you know, when you think about it, that was actually quite a few years ahead of its time. But again, people, for some reason, that back in the 50s, that was considered controversial. And there was a lot of debate as to whether to run the story unedited or to run it, you know, maybe edit it where they don't show the astronaut's face. So we'll definitely be talking about black comic book characters uh, as we continue on. But uh, back to Wertman. You might wonder, how did he reach his conclusion that comic books were responsible for juvenile delinquency well part of his problem and this is one of the major criticisms about his book is that he did a really bad job at choosing a sample size to work with he primarily looked at children who were from troubled backgrounds uh, who were already incarcerated in juvenile detention centers or kids who had behavioral problems so again he was I I don't know if you'd call it confirmation bias, but he was looking at these kids who already, you know, were either stressed circumstances, whether it was economic, you know, due to poverty or kids who did have these behavioral issues. He saw that they would read comics and then assume that, okay, comic books is what was causing these kids to, you know, commit, go out and commit crimes and to, you know, behave inappropriately. Now, he also did exaggerate or falsify information. For example, uh, he talked about one Captain Marvel comic where there was a headless person. In reality, 
there was a scene where Captain Marvel was splashed in the face with an invisibility potion. So he didn't actually get his head cut off. His face was invisible. Well, don't read the comic. Just judge the comic. Exactly. Yeah, just kind of look at the picture and kind of judge it there without taking the context of the story into consideration. Well, unfortunately, the damage was done, though. And this led to the creation of the Comics Code Authority. Now, do... Do they still use that with a lot of the modern comics? No, or? it was abandoned, I believe, sometime in the early 2000s. Because from what I understand is I know Marvel has their own rating system now. Um, and you can see it. Like, it's usually by where the uh, barcode is, the the UPC. Um, there, They don't have the, the, the other stamp. Theirs will say, you know, for mature or teen or, you know, all ages – so Marvel has their own. They've completely abandoned it. I think DC's completely abandoned it um, as well. I know Image completely abandoned it. I, be- I I think I think every for the most part everybody. I'm sure there's maybe one or two maybe independent that still use it, but for the most part, all the larger publishers have completely abandoned it. So as in the early 2000s, so. Yeah, because I remember I used to collect the Transformer comics, Mm -hmm. and I believe that one had the Comics Code Authority stamp on it. And when I was collecting X-Men, I believe they also had the the code on there as well, which adherence to the code was voluntary. Actually, I'm going to Google it. Hold on. Let me go to the Googles (laughs) while you're talking. Go ahead. The internet, the source (laughs) of all knowledge. So the, the adherence to the code was voluntary. However, the problem is that some distributors refused to carry the comics if they didn't have the code stamp on it. So it was kind of like, well, yeah, you can still produce comics that had, you know, suggestive material or violence in it, but then you risk not being able to get into distribution. Now, some of the points of the code, the main ones, were first, police, government, and authority figures could not be pictured in a negative light. Uh, crime must never be glorified. You couldn't do anything graphic or have excessive descriptions of violence, or depictions of violence, rather. No sexual innuendo. Any stories involving love or romance had to focus on heterosexual relationships and also the sanctity of marriage. And another one, to kind of go along with the no excessive depictions of violence, you couldn't use anything with vampires, werewolves, ghouls, or zombies for some reason. It looks like in the early 2000s, because DC had those grips, had had Vertigo, Helix, and Windstorm, which were their offshoot companies for mature readers, those were not being submitted, obviously, because they're already mature reader groups. And then Marvel had Epic which was a Marvel offshoot for mature readers that was not being submitted um, to the CCA. In 2001 is when Marvel pulled off and did its own rating system. DC stopped in in January 2011. And it looks like um, Archie stopped not long after. So I'm imagining, I'm guessing that pretty much everybody else must have pulled not long after that. So... Because I'm thinking of all the big publishers, if those guys are pulling, I can't imagine that Dark Horse and uh, I could go in the other room and pull my pull issues and look, but I can't <laughs> imagine that Dark Horse and like Image and uh, the some of those other ones, like uh, 
and like own Oni press. Any of those guys are still doing it either. So. Yeah. Cause I think that with the, I mean, would you say that maybe like it's because the main or not the mainstream, but the independent and smaller publishers, they really weren't looking for that mainstream dis- distribution, so they were less shy about adhering to the code. So you well, know, because no. if you're if the people that the indie, that the indie presses cater to are going to go seek out those books anyway, well, because half the time some of the the like people that like the Marvel and DC books sometimes you'll find those at Barnes and Noble, or you could find those in the day back in the day at gas stations and things. You know, but like a dark horse book, most of those are mature reader books anyway. You know, their horror, their horror line, all that. They're not going to get the approval from the criteria anyway, in most cases. So it's like, well, the people that the readers that are dedicated to those particular stories are going to go find them or order directly. And in this day, they can get them online. You know, like dark horse, you can get digital copies of everything. So why would they care? Yep. And... (laughs) Now, one thing that, as we start to transition from the end of the Silver Age into the Bronze Age, one of the things you mentioned that you used to be able to get comics at your local gas station, that actually really kind of transitions nicely into the Bronze Age, which, again, about 1970 to 1985, uh, that's when I was doing research, that's where where most people seem to put the date range, but we don't really have a definitive of definitive event. I think that, there's overlap yeah, between the Bronze and Modern Age in the early 80s. I think there's a lot of overlap. Yeah, and again, you mentioned gas stations. And mm-hmm. I remember, yeah, there were gas stations and convenience stores back in where I used to live where, yeah, I would go in there and I that's where I would get my comics. Dime stores. You remember dime stores, Al? Oh, yeah. You'd go to the dime store and they'd have a little rack of comics and you could go pick up like, you know, Batman issue 52. You, that those don't exist anymore. Kids don't know what dime stores are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And like sometimes even like pharmacies like yeah. uh, Walgreens. Actually, I don't remember if it was Walgreens or Woolworths. Ben Franklin's. Yep. So <laughs> for, okay, for those who aren't really, don't really know what a dime store is for you youngins out there. Uh, dime stores were, I don't know, I guess they were kind of like a pr- uh, predecessor to a department store. Well, no, it would think of it like it's a predecessor to a dollar store, basically, but less junk. It was like if you take, um, it has a lot of tchotchkes in it. Like, you know, the st- <laughs> they're probably going, what does that mean? <laughs> There's a Midwestern term. It's like, think of it, the, the niche stuff you would see in the front of a Hobby Lobby, okay, all the little weird, like, knick-knacky stuff, but then that, which which was, like, that nobody wanted. Sometimes they had a pharmacy in the back, sometimes, not always. The ones in small towns usually did. And then they have, like, you know, little things of stuffed animals, like a Hallmark, kind of. Like, you could get your, you could get birthday cards and gift wrap and all that. And then, then they have a rack of books and in our case, comic books. And it was, it was just like a little bit of everything. It was a general store, like essentially. Yeah, That's exactly. <laughs> Don't think they had groceries there. No. Or if they, they did. They might have had candy maybe. Yeah. Candy, soda, like now and later and stuff like that. But yeah. Yeah. Primarily, you know, they didn't really have a big selection of food. Usually the stuff I, that I remember seeing in places like that, it was generally like snacks or candy yeah. or soda 
Um, but yeah, they had a lot of knickknacky things, and sometimes mm-hmm. they even had a little toy aisle. Like uh, one thing I remember, I used to get at this one uh, dime store in my area. Do you remember Muscle Things? Yes. Yeah, the little pink muscle wrestler figures. I had to and... think for a second, but now, yeah. <laughs> so I remember I used to collect those. But yeah, that's where I, I remember I would get some of my Transformer comics. And there's this one episode, not an episode issue, that I actually remember. You never got into the Transformers comics, did you? or? You ask me that every time, and the answer is always no. <laughs> okay, sorry. The answer is still no. Maybe one of these days I'll ask you, did you, have you ever gotten into the Transformers comics? And you'll say, actually, yes, I've decided to check them out. But, I mean, the, the Transformers comics, is back then it was all weird because you had the G1 cartoon, you know, that a lot of kids were familiar with. And then you had the Marvel comics. The, there was the American Marvel comics Transformers, and then there was the British Transformers. So there were some things that happened in the cartoon that never happened in the comics and some things that happened in in the US comic that never happened in the the British uh Transformer comic series and stuff that happened in the British series that never happened in the cartoon or stuff. So it was kind of a confusing to follow. You, you had to really look at it as separate continuities. But one issue that I remember very vividly was called Into the Smelting Pool. And I think it was like issue 16 or 17. It was in the teens. But do you remember the Transformer Blaster? Yes. Transforming the boombox. Yeah, he was, yeah. He was like, you know, tumbling headfirst into this uh, into this boiling pool. And there were these other like half-melted robots around him. So that picture I always remembered. And... You know, I think they could get away with some of the stuff in Transformers because this was still around the time of the comics code being, you know, still fairly prominent is since it was robots, you know, and they weren't picturing people getting blown up. Well, yeah, you could kind of get away with that. But yeah, around this time to get back on track here, this is where comics started to move from those mass marketplaces like your grocery store, your five and dimes, your... Uh, you know, your pharmacies to specialty stores. Yep. And really, I mean, isn't that, I mean, I, since I don't collect comics anymore, do, is that where you usually find your comics nowadays, like the hobby or game stores as opposed no, to? I go right to, I have a, I have a comic shop I go to. Um, I'm a, and I'm a very, I'm very loyal to my comic shop. Like they know me when I come in, I have a subscription box so that they know what issues I'm looking. I only like have, I think like set, like maybe eight to 12 things that they know to, to pull for me every month. And the rest I go and I get off the wall myself, but they've got them. They put them aside for me. And that way, you know, certain things I can't miss otherwise, cause people, they sell out and I have to wait until yeah. the next shipment comes in, but they know me when I come in and, they know what I like, and that it's it's really great when That's you're cool. when and and the best part is I don't get treated like there's a girl in here. Yeah, because that's the thing. And when I was a kid, it's like you you know, and I think it shows how far like geek related things like comics and games mm-hmm. have come. Is that you know back when I was a kid, it's like if I would have saw a girl playing Dungeons and Dragons or a girl you know, playing comic, you know, reading comic books, I'd be like, what? Where, you know, that would have been really unusual for me. You went to the wrong school, Al. Yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) Where, 
you know, nowadays, of course, it's like, you know, I, one of my gaming groups, there's a couple females in there and it's like, yeah, it's no big deal anymore to see a girl playing video games or reading comics or playing Dungeons and Dragons or anything like that. And my D and D group is all girls except one, (laughs) one guy. (laughs) So yes, it's, it's glad I'm, I am glad to see that. Um, at least it's maybe you have a different perspective, but does it seem like in things like comics and video games and, and role-playing games that, you know, females enjoying these things has become more socially acceptable? I just think the, I think women are more comfortable being out in public and doing it in public. I think it's always been, the girls have always enjoyed it. I just think they're more comfortable um, letting their geek flag fly at yeah. this point. And that's what I'm, I'm happy about because I've never been a shy personality. So, you know, I mean, I did competitive chess in second grade. <laughs> I, in second grade, I did competitive chess. So, and I've always been surrounded by nerdy guys. So I've always been comfortable around nerdy guys that are awkward around women. So for me, it's never been like unusual. So I'm kind of used to it. But other girls, aren't comfortable. So I'm glad to see that other women are like out there now and getting comfortable around everything. So that's yeah, good. It's good. As we you know, again saw the comic market go from, you know, mass market locations to specialty stores, the comics code did relax a bit. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, one of the reasons I think we have to keep in mind as to why there were a lot of these changes is that, you know, in the seventies, that's where, a lot of the veterans, the people who started writing comics in the 30s and 40s, uh, unfortunately, some of them are dying off or they're retiring or they're leaving the industry. So we've got new blood coming in. We've got new talent, uh, people who are going to have different ways of looking at things. And, you know, I think around this time, you know, society is also changing where things that were considered socially unacceptable are now becoming more, maybe if they're not completely accepted, they're not looked down upon as much as they used to be. Mm -hmm. Uh, One thing with the comics code where it got kind of relaxed is, for example, you could now talk about drugs in your comics. However, you still couldn't picture them as being glamorous, um, where you had to picture them as something that was, you know, that was terrible and, uh, I believe, wasn't there a Green Arrow where they had Speedy, his sidekick, being like a heroin addict? I think so, yeah. Speedy's always been a very interesting character in the Arrowverse, so kind of switched between who is Speedy, like the character itself. Like like Robin, Speedy changes who's Speedy several times. Yeah, because so. <laughs> yeah, the the main appearance I remember of Speedy is in an episode of the Justice League Unlimited series. Mm-hmm. There was an episode where uh, Speedy made a, a appearance, but it was just for one episode because he was like a reserve member. But also around this time, we start seeing writers explore darker themes and social commentary comes back. For example, the X-Men comics, they're often seen as a metaphor for oppressed minorities. Yep. Uh, Tony Stark. Again, we he really grappled with his alcoholism during this time where, you know, again, it wasn't picturing the fact that he liked to drink booze as being glamorous yeah. or something you aspire to. They pictured it as being horrible, which, you know, yeah, alcoholism is a terrible thing. And also uh, we mentioned before how that Judgment Day story, how 
you know, the fact that it had a black protagonist was seen as unacceptable by some people, we start to see the rise of strong black characters. Uh, ones that I can name off the top of my head, uh, Black Panther, I believe, came into being around this time. Storm from the X-Men. Yep. Uh, we also had John Stewart, uh, Green Lantern, who was was African-American. And Luke Cage. Yes. Which I believe, aren't they coming out with a Luke Cage series pretty oh, soon? He was so good on Jessica Jones. I can't wait for his solo his solo series on Netflix. So that that is awesome. I'm glad that we have gotten to the point where now, you know, here we are recognizing that, you know, black superheroes, they are, you know, they're going to be just as powerful and just as good as, as white superheroes. And yeah, now that we've got... an upcoming series that's going to feature a black superhero that I think that really shows how far we've come since, you know, since the fifties. That's all Marvel though. DC needs to step up. Just saying. Oh, DC they haven't done as much with black superheroes. No. And they've got, they cast Will Smith as Deadshot, but he's technically uh, like a hitman villain, but you know, they need to step up. Okay. Anyway. Okay. And then, Going on to the modern age, which most people put around the mid-80s, so about 85 to present, and I think on the Marvel side, didn't they, I thought I read that like this, when they came out with the Secret Wars, that was considered their transition from bronze, or from the, yeah, bronze age to the modern age? Maybe. I'm not, I'd have to sit and, I'd have to sit and really think about it, because I don't know if I have anything Secret Wars. Oh, well, maybe I do. I'd have to go through my Avengers, all my Avengers stuff. I have so much 80s. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen part of your comic collection, so yeah. Um, <laughs> it's like taken over to the under this. I have a really big closet under my stairs, and it's a nice, open, like, breezy closet. And I have so many short boxes because long boxes are too heavy for me, so short yep. boxes. But Yeah, and uh, I did like the idea of Secret Wars. Was it like you had, like, this planet where all these Marvel superheroes and villains were brought together? Yeah. So, like, the ultimate crossover. It was interesting, but I'm trying to remember if that was that. Well, they just did it all over again. So Marvel and their multiverse stuff. Uh, now, some people consider the modern age. They also call it the dark age because publishers are now free to explore darker and more mature themes. And as you mentioned before, uh, a lot of the you know, the publishers, especially the major ones, don't go by the comics code anymore. Though I remember you mentioned that Marvel, they do have their own rating system. Yep. Which is good, actually, because when you have someone, for example, like my sister, who has a nine-year-old who wants to start learning to read comics, which I encourage completely, if I don't read a certain title and he's interested in it, this is a way for me to go, okay, Marvel said this is good for you know, all ages. Good to know. They're saying that there's nothing in this that's overly violent, overly sexual theme wise. Okay. Well then I'll flip through it and see if any of the characters look to me, look like they might be a little questionable and then I'll hand it off to a nine-year-old. Yeah. And I think that's a much better approach adapt adopting a, you know, a rating system like they do with movies and video games. So yeah, that way, if you do see a title, and, you know, you've got like, in your case, a nine-year-old nephew, you know, you're not, you want to make sure that, you know, this new comic that you want to introduce him to is going to be appropriate for his age group. 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, because he like he likes Iron Man, and I'll tell you right now, Tony Stark is not always child appropriate. <laughs> so, and I know that I've read comics since I was like his age. <laughs> so it's like I'm going okay. Well, yeah, I mean, alrighty. <laughs> I mean, I've only I've seen the the first two Iron Man movies, and I remember I think it was in the the second one where. Uh, Rhodey was coming in to take one of the power suits and you know here you had Tony Stark he was drunk while wearing a suit of armor that could blow up things so yeah obviously not a good combination no no so also another thing that's very significant around this time we start to see more of the independent and small press publishers start to rise but we also see the popularity of the anti-hero because I believe this is around the time we have yeah, like or villains, yep. antihero villain. I prefer the word villain because that's really what they are. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, because uh, I mean, I know that Punisher had debuted somewhat earlier in the Spider-Man comics. Mm-hmm. But uh, do you were you ever into Punisher? Sometimes my opinion of Frank Castle varies. Like sometimes I love him, and it depends who's writing him. Yeah, I think is what if 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 the writer is good, then I like reading Frank Castle. If the writing isn't good, then I don't care for it. <laughs> yeah, because uh, I I believe this is around the time where the Punisher started to get his own series. I mean, I could be wrong on that. Uh, I mean, I I just remember that he debuted in the Spider Man series, uh, Deadpool. Oh yeah, Deadpool didn't wasn't good until he almost got canceled. Side note, but there you go. Yeah, but that's what I would consider an antihero. They're not really a hero. They're just kind of like there to do their own thing. But they're but they do good kind of on accident. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I always like to see him as an antihero. The they push the boundaries of what's considered acceptable for a hero. Yeah, and like another one, like Wolverine, where. I, I mean, I think they can anti-heroes can really be interesting in like any sort of team dynamic environment because for every Wolverine who doesn't hesitate to kill the bad guys, you kind of need a Cyclops or a Storm or a Colossus who's going to say, you know, if we, you know, we, we don't kill because that's what makes us better than them. That's why Deadpool needs Cable. <laughs> exactly. and. And I think we also see some villains becoming less black and white, mm-hmm. where Galactus, notably, he's a cosmic force, which, as I recall from my uh, what little I know of the Marvel cosmology, he's necessary for the balance of the cosmos and the continuation of the universe. You gotta love Galactus. You gotta. Yeah. He, he is an interesting character. Um, Squirrel Girl could talk him out of eating a planet, so he's got to have some decency. Come on. That's true. And yeah, he's, again, he's pictured as not devouring planets because he wants to kill lots of things. It's because he needs to eat too. Mm-hmm. And that's why he, again, created these heralds so that way they, he could find, you know, that herald could find planets for him that, you know, weren't. You know, that were capable of sustaining life, but didn't have intelligent life on it. So that way it was a lot, you know, it was more acceptable for him to eat those planets than, you know, something like the Earth. So why do you think there's been all these changes? I mean, we know that part of it is because of the comics code. And then eventually we have uh, publishers starting to move away from the code. Why do you think we've seen some of these changes overall? 
just the ebb and flow of of how people behave. I mean, when you look, I mean, just look at how society has changed. For example, I mean, you start with the golden age. Well, look at people. People were just looking for something um, a little more to lift them up and keep them motivated during what we would consider a very dark time in the U.S. history, for example, in world history, to be perfectly honest. You know, this World War II was not a good time for anybody. Um, and then, honestly, and then the 50s and 60s was, <laughs> was when the comics code comes into play, when you sit and really look, what do you think of when you think of the 50s and 60s? You think of Donna Reed and you think of, you know, the the, the perfect household. You think of... Leave it to be. You think of, you think of the, the good old American life, the, the, the wife at home with the food on the table when you get in and she's, you know, always, everything's perfect. So there shouldn't be anything wrong that's going to possibly lead your family astray, especially in the comics that your kids are reading. It should all be like Archie. Exactly. That's the fifties and sixties. Okay. You come into the seventies, you've got what Vietnam. Yep, and so, also during the 60s – well, I think during the 60s also in America anyway, we have the civil rights movement. Yep. Well, that and then that starts pulling down into – as we start coming to the civil rights movement and we're coming down into the Viet, into Vietnam and we're coming into all of that starts bringing us down into the Bronze Age gradually and pulling us out. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we start coming to that where people want more freedom and arts and art, the artistic movement is starting to come out. We start coming into glam rock and look at all of the, the drug rock becomes really heavy, you know, and then you, you start getting in the, the artistic movement gets really big and people are pushing forward and experimenting and now drug use. I mean, look, we're coming into the eighties cocaine. Yep. And remember <laughs> I mean, the, the just say no era, which is yep. why, you know, one of the, it was ex- considered acceptable to portray drugs in your mm-hmm. comic. It's just, you couldn't portray them as being, you know, glamorous or something that you should, you know, you should do. It's, it's needs to be considered something terrible, something that you have to just say no to. Yep. And just think about it. Everything kind of went from the eighties and the modern, everything goes, anything goes. And if you watch, I mean, yeah, when I say social commentary earlier, every kind of things are darker right now in the comics. If you look at Marvel and their big, uh, full events, you know, they had their, their, they're in a civil war now, but they just finished a secret war less than a year ago. But you look at all these dark events they've got going on. Look at how much negativity and stuff's going on in the world around them. It's like it all just echoes everything going on around. Yeah. It's so it's like it, it just kind of it's like we pull art and comics are art, whether you're looking at the authorship or the drawing or the inking and the coloration if from the world around us. So, so everything, even the characters, personalities, it all changes from the world around us. So life imitate art or does art imitate life? I think art imitates life. Yep. So as we've so that I guess you could say is our uh, brief history of the comic book industry. <laughs> so yeah, I, I agree with a lot of what you said about how you know as times have changed, things that were once considered verboten are now considered more socially acceptable or they're more out in the open. And then you know, also comics aren't seen as something that's just for kids anymore. 
because you know, but way back when, when you had like the you know the Mickey Mouse comics and the you know the funny strips in the newspaper, yeah, comics were kind of just a kid's thing. But nowadays, it's like we can see them as an art form that you know does give you social commentary and sometimes points out things that I don't know, maybe sometimes things we're not too comfortable discussing, and I think it can sometimes be. an effective way to explain certain things to children. I mean, I don't know if that makes sense or not, but um, I I mean, this wasn't really comics, but I remember, was it the late 80s or early 90s? They had like the something like cartoon all-stars fight back or something. It was supposed to be about a kid who was thinking of taking drugs. Yeah. And he was, yeah, he met up with the, one of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and, you know, different characters from all these various well, yeah. uh, franchises. Yeah, that was a thing. But, I mean, don't forget, there's always been comics for adults. I mean, in the 80s is when Frank Miller's comics started coming out, his Dark Knight stuff and his 300 stuff. All that stuff came out in the 80, late 80s. So... Yeah, and then heavy metal. That's mm-hmm. you know that was another one that where again it was it was I don't know if it was really considered mainstream, but I, I guess the way I see it, maybe I'm, I might be wrong about this, but most mainstream comics before you know around this the, the Bronze Age, modern age, were for trying to focus primarily on adolescents. But well, moving on, a quick question for you. Yeah. So when we talk about comics, we've been through the Gold Age, the Silver Age, the Bronze Age, and now some people think we're in a Dark Age. What do you think is going to come next? Um, <laughs> I almost think a Dark Age is coming, actually. But and that's just that's me looking at what what the buying comics, honestly, and seeing how things have been going. Um, but. And seeing like readership, well, people say readership's not changing, but I'm seeing the companies trying too hard, like the big companies like Marvel and DC trying too hard and actually losing customers, like longtime customers, because they're trying so hard to bring like the young crowd in that they're losing those that have been purchasing from them for so long. So. Well, hopefully the comic book industry does remain strong, but I yeah. I think we've talked about the history of comics enough where yeah. now we can finally get into the main topic of today's show. The meat of the, the show. that we- <laughs> Yes. Well, hopefully you found some of the stuff we were talking about so far, uh, you know, if not entertaining, at least educational, but the Joker. Yeah. So now the origin, from what I understand, there have been several origin stories about the Joker. Yeah, he doesn't have a he doesn't have a real solid origin. Yeah, I was reading in one thing. Apparently, he he prefers his past to be or his origin to be multiple choice. Yep, he says multiple choice, and he can't always quite remember. Yeah, now, now is it because he's a criminal and he doesn't like to tell the truth, or because he's just insane? Um, I think it has more to do with the fact that um the the cre- his creators have liked to keep it ambiguous. Because I know, like, between Bob Kane and Bill Finger, they've never really settled on an origin. And anybody else that's written the Joker, they just keep making stuff up. And because there's no, DC has no standardized continuity. It's just, it suits the character better with his insanity to not have a standard origin. Yeah. <laughs> I, 
I think that does make it a bit more effective as a character when we, he doesn't have that origin. Um, and actually, what's interesting, fun fact here, originally he was supposed to be killed off in the fir- in, in his first appearance. The reason I heard or the rationale is that if he was this reoccurring villain... Are you talking make, about the Detective Comics or the actual Batman number one? Uh, the actual Batman number one. Okay. Because if, I guess they thought that if, you know, we had this reoccurring villain, it meant that that would seem that Batman was ineffective as a crime fighter because he had this criminal that he wouldn't kill. He would just put him in jail and then he'd come back out again. Um, but so, yeah, he was supposed to be killed off, but they decided to keep him because that way he would be a good arch nemesis for Batman. And I think most of his origin stories involve him falling in a, a vat of chemicals that not only alters his appearance, but is responsible for his mental state. Something, usually something to that effect. I mean, there was the one where like he loses his wife and, and either unborn child or young child, and um, that is what puts him on the path, and then he gets and then he gets mutated or whatever, and which is similar then to you know Bruce's origin story. That's the it's one really bad day origin. Yeah, I've heard about that, and uh, wasn't that from the Killing Joke? The, yeah, I think that's from the Killing Joke, which we'll definitely get to because I think isn't the Killing Joke supposed to be one of the most considered one of the most important works in Batman's Batman fiction? Yeah, it's actually when they just animated it. So yeah, remember you uh, you posted on Facebook you had the the trailer for it, so that should be oh, interesting yeah. to see how that turns out. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, again, as far as a, a supervillain goes, and I think this is one of the things that makes him so noteworthy, is that as far as villains go, he doesn't have any powers. No, he's just criminally insane. And people say psychopath, but I think it actually falls more under sociopathy because he does, he has no empathy whatsoever for anyone. No, none. I mean, he, that's, that's that classic sociopathy. He has zero empathy. He doesn't care. But he's also brilliant, which is another sociopath tendency. It's like he's extremely intelligent. He knows what he's doing. He's manipulative. And he doesn't actually care about the welfare of others at all. No, not at all. Because he'll, he'll kill his minions. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't care at all. Yep. Because I remember that in the uh, when you're talking about killing his minions, the – uh, movie the 1989 movie with Jack Nicholson mm-hmm. where you know his number one Bob just pulls out the gun and shoots him for no reason so and, and I think one of the things that makes him such a memorable villain is that he takes these joke themed prop items and usually modifies them so that they have deadly explosives or Joker Venom yep the Joker Venom the Joker Venom which has been with him since day one in the comics. And I think didn't did Cesar Romero have Joker Venom? I'm trying to remember because that he would that was such a campy show, so I can't remember. And they had to keep it lighthearted. But. Yeah, because it was a '60s, so that would that would be that would actually fall still within this the later part of the Silver Age. Mm-hmm. So, and again, it was since it was aimed for the kids. Well, you know, remember, you know, Batman carrying the bomb over his head while he's running across the TV screen. Yeah, the silliness. It was meant to be goofy as opposed to violent. But yep. I'm trying to remember. But yeah, the 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 Joker Venom, which has made people basically laugh to death in most instances. Yeah, where they and when they die, they've got this big grin on their face. So uh, yeah, that was that's one of his main weapons. And then 
one game video game that I think just perfectly captured him, uh, Marvel vs. D or more. I'm sorry, not Marvel, DC vs. Mortal Kombat. And like some of the weapons he uses in that, like he's got one move where he goes, put her there, and he shakes the person's hand and they get electrocuted. And he has like, you know, there's one of those old gag items. It's like a boxing glove on with like uh, two handles and you squeeze them together and the glove shoots out. Yeah. You know, so he adds stuff like that. So yeah, those are his main weapons. These practical joke or uh you know, props that are essentially modified with explosives or deadly chemicals. And, of course, one of the other things that uh, he's totally unpredictable. Yep. And what's, you know, that's what's so amazing about him is that he has been known at times to outwit Batman, who is this master detective and extremely intelligent person. I think as far as his actual combat abilities... Uh, that I think usually depends on the writer, but um, as time has progressed, they've made him more and more uh, combat proficient where he can actually hold his own in a fist fight against Batman, which, yeah, the, no easy feat. No. And I think it's a, a lot of what, what like, um, the, as far as the, the unpredictability versus the intelligence, it's like he has it, but then all of a sudden it's just, he gets a moment of, ooh, shiny, I'm going to do this. And that's why it's so unpredictable and why he has Batman has trouble getting him is because you can't predict what he's going to do. So getting a grip on him and predicting him is impossible. Exactly. And again, he has changed over time and I, we owe a lot to the changes in the comic book culture and the different eras in comic book history that we've uh, just talked about. And I think that's shown perfectly in a lot of the live action jokers. So uh, there's four live action jokers we've seen so far um, in, you know, mainstream media. Uh, At least I think those, these are the four. I know of, I don't know if there was one on Gotham. I don't watch Gotham, so I have no idea. Yeah, these are the four main ones. So in the 1960s for the Batman TV series, we had Cesar Romero. Yep. And then in 1989, Jack Nicholson. Yes. 2008, Heath Ledger. Mm-hmm. And then the most recent one, Jared Leto. Yes. Is it Leto or Leto? I don't know. I pronounce it Leto. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that cause Cesar Romero. A perfect example of the Silver Age Joker because, you know, around that time, that's where Joker moved from being the psychotic professional criminal to being more the goofy prankster or trickster. Right. And I think what before, I mean, as we're talking about this, what I want to just preface it with is I don't think there's a right or wrong way to portray the Joker. Um, As long as you keep his psychosis in mind. Because it's always been a key element of the character and the lack of empathy. Um, just because that's what um, his or his character creators have always put in play. But it, everything is, is always an interpretation of the Joker. There's Joker purists out there that kind of bother me. That'll say, this is the only way to play the Joker. And that's the only way to play the Joker. And that's, and that's what bothers me about the people that get upset with the live action. And I think that everybody that's done it has done a fantastic job. Yep. Everybody. With their version. But Cesar Romero, I love the camp because it suited that series so well. It really did. 
And I think it also fit in perfectly with the time span yes. and time frame because, well, we have to remember, this was a TV series. It was aimed at children. And it was the product of his era, too. Yep. And again, we still had the comic code that was still very mm-hmm. much, well, wasn't enforced, but it was still very big. So they had to write this Joker that was going to be true to the comic version, which at this time was the, like I said, the goofy trickster prankster who he wasn't really going for trying to kill lots of people or wasn't necessarily aspiring to domination but as i you know as i recall he was just doing this to to get money right yeah now did you watch a lot of the batman live action when you were a kid uh what do you mean the the old one from the 60s I did in reruns. Oh, I loved it. Well, yeah, of course it. we would have watched it in reruns because uh, the the show. That's was... why I didn't know if there was something on TV I missed. That's why I wanted to clarify because yeah, you know. yeah. As far as I know, there um, you know, there wasn't any live action Joker's or live action Batman series before the nineteen uh, sixty series, and I don't think we had a live action Batman series since. Though, well, I guess Gotham. You have to count that because yeah. it's kind of like his origin story but but yeah i've seen i've seen all of it i've seen all of the the 1960s series and i will tell you julie newmar is my favorite Catwoman. too bad <laughs> yep and <laughs> so that's the one that i remember because i yeah i remember watching it in reruns when i was a kid and what i always hated and got kind of annoying is how they tended to end it on cliffhangers well, yeah, but that's how they got people to watch it the next time. But exactly. yeah, I mean, I get it. <laughs> you remember this phrase, will the Cape Crusader and the Boy Wonder make it out of this death trap? Tune in next, next week. week. Same, same bat, bat time. time. Same bat channel. <laughs> yep. And yeah, so that I always loved that. But so after the 60s, we the next time we got the live action Joker was in the 1989 movie oh. by Tim Burton. with. Yes. Jack Nicholson. Oh, God. You know what? I still think Jack was fantastic. I really do. And I, when it's on TV, when I catch it, like on TV, I will watch. I will watch that like crazy. It is fantastic. By the way, Suicide Squad has some nods to Jack Nicholson's cool. Joker in there. Just to people that haven't seen it yet, do it. Look for them. They're great. Yep. And this is where the thing that I, I have to agree with you. I loved Jack Nicholson's portrayal of the Joker. And I think it was a- like, yeah, it was like, a, wasn't it a combination of the camp and the, the psychotic gangster, the sank, the psychotic gangster. It exactly. was like, it, he was like the mobster and the campy clown at the same time. He took a combination of the two. So and it was great. Them very successfully. So yes, yeah, and I, I agree with you on that. I mean, we're we're definitely on the same page because that's one of the things that was so awesome about it is, yeah, he was this psychotic gangster, but he had a few good one-liners. Like one of my favorite ones was, "Will someone tell me what kind of world we live in where a man dressed as a bat gets all my press?" <laughs> yeah, you know. And what I also liked is he had the element. Um, Because this is a pre-Harley Quinn era, and I want people to remember that. Jack Nicholson's Joker is pre-Harley Quinn. 
Okay. Yeah, he he had Bob as his number one that he ends up shooting for some reason. Well, no, but he also had Vanessa, the girl whose face he melted. Okay, remember, and he was going after Vicky Vale. So those stop the, the press. Who is, <laughs> who that? is that? Vicky Vale. But he had the two women. He was predatory, like basically predatory, <laughs> getting yeah. all after. But it was still psychotically possessive. There was no love there. There was no. Ro- I mean, he was he was basically wooing Vicky, but because of art, he wanted to make her art. It had nothing to do with romance and love. It was out of art. Yeah, and I, I love the part when they enter the art museum. It's like, gentlemen, let's broaden our minds. You know exactly, and that's but that's the thing that when it's always been a part of the Joker's character, always. That it's like he he's creating things, and that's what he cares more about is he's creating chaos or mayhem or something. It's like art to him. Yes. Like destruction is art to him. Chaos is art to him. That's why when I look at Harley, Harley is art to him. He doesn't really love her. He loves his creation. And when I look at – look go back to how he treated Vicky Vale and his Vanessa, the girl that had the mask on, it's like they were art to him. He didn't actually care about them personally because he would have killed Vicky in the end. I'm pretty sure. I think, I think if I go back to it, other than the part where he gives her the mask during the, the reign of money parade, he would have killed her easily, not cared. In fact, I think with the, with Bruce in the apartment part, he probably would have after in that scene. Yeah. And the, I remember in the art museum, that's where it wasn't that where they, he gave her the mask. He, well, yeah, the end of the parade. Okay. And then, and then also, I remember, but remember, he, Bruce is in the apartment. <laughs> I'm sorry. Oh, I yes, really now think I remember he, that. he's, um, Bill, uh, what's his name? That, uh, Michael Keaton was an amazing Bruce Wayne. I don't care. He was amazing Bruce Wayne. Yep. But Bruce, he's in the apartment and then Joker comes to the door. Bruce hides. When he comes out, he uh he makes a comment about some Joker makes a comment about somebody else being in the hen house or whatever or roosting in his hen house, and he shoots at Bruce, thinks he killed him, and then threatens Vicky. So it's like he doesn't actually care about her; he cares about his property. Yep. And it's like this is an ongoing sentiment with Joker from his whole history as a character that I wish people would go back and think about but okay anyway yep. moving on yep. <laughs> now isn't was this around the time that killing joke came out killing joke came out i want to say in a let me look uh 88 so 88, yeah so about on. the same time 88 89 because tim burton's was 89 right yes 89 so yeah so about the same time killing joke came out 88 this movie came out 89 so, so let's uh take a little side quest from the live action jokers and talk about the killing joke which I'm familiar with the basic plot of it. I'm not, I haven't actually read it, but I, I know this is the one where Joker just, I know he, he shoots Batgirl and paralyzes her and he does a bunch of other nasty stuff. So tell us about the killing joke. Oh, do you want me to ruin it for everybody? Cause the movie just came out. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Spoiler alert. If uh, you don't want the killing joke ruined for you, you might want to fast forward a, few, uh, a little bit. So, okay. Spoiler Go. Okay. Well, if everybody, first of all, if you should know that Barbara Gordon, aka Batgirl, becomes Oracle at some point, and this is the groundwork laid for her to become Oracle. 
This is that that's what Barbara Gordon has to do for everybody online that's seen this movie and doesn't understand why Barbara Gordon has anything to do with the storyline. That's why she's actually part of the graphic novel, because this is the groundwork for her to become Oracle for Batgirl becoming Oracle. There's that. Okay. Um, and then basically oh God, I'm trying to think how to make a synopsis of this. It talks, it gives a little bit of Joker's messed up um, the, one of his one of his many origin stories, the one about his wife and the child and his messed up career that falls through that one. So in addition to shooting Batgirl, uh, what are some of the other things in the killing joke he did that were noteworthy? Well, OK, so I know. Well, he, he well, he basically, yeah, he shoot it. Paral- I think paralyzes is the best word. And then um, there's the whole scene with the whole, where he talks about the one bad day, he starts talking about that it was what can ruin a person. He's that conversation with Batman, you know, basically explain how he became himself. Well, it all it takes is one bad day is what he says to Batman. It, it, it insinuates that Batman and Joker both fall at the end of it. That it insinuates kind of, I think that they both die, but um, it's left uncertain. Yeah. Cause I don't remember the, I don't know why they can insinuate that Batman died because I I recall wasn't it like uh, Joker and Batman were like almost in like an embrace and they're laughing and then like the the laughing stops where it's implied that Batman broke Joker's neck. Yeah, but they just kind of fall out of panel, so you can't really decide what happens next. Like you can't, it's up for you to decide what happens next because you just kind of they just kind of fall out of panel. If I remember correctly, like you just don't, you have no idea what happens like outside of the panel. Um, but I, beyond that, I don't know. I haven't really, I don't have a hardcover. Ver- I don't have a, a copy of it anymore that went with an X a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and I haven't seen it yet. Like the action, I wanted to pick up a copy of the of new reprint of it, a hardcover. I just haven't. I'm going to wait till after Dragon Con. So okay, and back on track now. Okay, spoilers over. Uh, now we're going to go to the Heath Ledger version in the 2008. Which this one, I think he's definitely falling more along the lines of the modern one, where he's pretty much just full blown psychopath with few, if any, redeeming qualities. Now he's just murderous in in that one as far as I'm concerned. He's like he he's he's got the psychotic and the sociopathic um tendencies from what I can tell. I mean I've seen it. I love Heath Ledger's Joker. It's a different kind of Joker. But there's no all of the humor is gone. Do you know what I mean? All the light the little bit of lightheartedness heartedness is not there. Yeah and I I've only seen part of the Dark Knight, so or that was that the one he was in Dark Knight or Dark Knight Rise? No, Dark Knight uh, Rises. No, that was yeah, Bane. I think no, I think it's just the Dark Knight, the first yeah. one. Well, yeah, that one. I mean, I've only seen part of the ep- part of it. So, uh, but yeah, that's what I remember. A lot of people were praising his performance, which it was okay. It, it it was it was good for the kind of for what they were going for movie in the movie. Would I? put him in any other type of Batman scenario as the Joker? No, he would not work in the suicide squad type films. Not at all. Would he work in the Batman versus Superman type universe? Absolutely not. He ledger's Joker does not have the personality type to work in that universe. It works in the dark Knight universe 
because the Dark Knight universe is so devoid of that kind of camp that it wouldn't work. And it works for, for the, uh, the Nolan, the Nolan verse. It works for that. Um, it does, it would not work in the Scott Snyder. It, or it would not work in the, the Zack Snyder. It would not work in with a, a Scott, with Ayers. It would not work in that universe. There's too much color. There's too much humor and camp. It wouldn't work. But for what he was in, Ledger's Joker was perfect for the universe he was in. And I'm sad that it drove him to the um, mental state that it did, that he took his own life, which is sad. Yeah. And so did they confirm or something that his role in the movie had that effect on him? I believe that was confirmed because I think they went hand in hand time frame wise. It's too bad. I mean, I've, I haven't seen many of his films. Uh, the one that always stands out for me is A Knight's Tale. He was good. He was good. I, I can't think of anything that, that Ledger did that I didn't enjoy. So, Well, now this brings us to eight years later, uh, the recently released Suicide Squad with Jared yeah. Leto. So mm-hmm. uh, without without spoiling anything. Not going to spoil it because he's not in the movie a whole lot. So. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the things that I, I remember you were posting about. It's like because uh, you were kind of giving your brief synopsis of the of what you thought of Suicide Squad, and um, I know you tried not to spoil anything. With so, why don't you tell us a little bit about that the, port- the Jared Leto portrayal without spoiling? I think the best way to describe Jared Leto's Joker is it is take Jack Nicholson's Joker, okay, um, make him. Uh, amp him up a lot, like really amp him up, give him a grill. I'm not sure. I wasn't crazy about the grill. I'll admit that. And you've seen that in the pictures in the trailer. So it's not even a spoiler. I'm not crazy about the grill. I'll completely admit that all the tattoos and stuff that everybody sees and complains about. And the look are completely uh, off the death in the family cover. That That's a very specific look for the Joker. It's, it's very comic book specific. It's a very specific look for him. He's very mobster. And I don't mean, I mean, I'm talking like owns a casino kind of a mobster. Do you know what I mean? Like you've seen the pro, if you see the promotional images where Harley's wearing all black and gold. I have not. Okay. I know there's promotional images out there, so that's not really a spoiler. Um, Harley's wearing all black and gold and they're sitting in this room of all black and gold. That's actually a casino shot. And so it's like, think of like a casino, like a Vegas kind of casino mobster, like someone that runs a casino kind of thing, like very wealthy. And that you want to be in control of everything. You control money, you control guns, you control people. This is the kind of where he is in charge and he needs to be in charge. And that power and that manipulation and all of that, this is the kind of powerful person that he is where he likes to know what people want and he wants to control what people want that's the kind of joker that this is and i think it's perfect that laugh will haunt me in my sleep yeah (laughs) i from what i know of suicide squad i'm not an expert on it but um it it actually in the justice league unlimited series they referred to it as task force x X. but yep but more or less the same idea where you had a group of villains that were well, I don't know if you want to say forced or recruited mm-hmm. by the government to do black ops type stuff. Yep. Because as I believe, they're disposable. So no one cares. Exactly. And as I believe uh, Amanda Waller put it, it's like 
um, the you know they have plausible deniability if they get caught, and of course mm-hmm. you know they can disown their actions. And if it's supervillains doing it, then there's yeah there's that people can see why you're disowning them or why you might not have recruited them. I don't know if that makes sense, but right. right. Um, so I I think that from what you're describing. That interpretation of the Joker probably was what you needed in this. I couldn't picture the Cesar Romero version or the Jack Nicholson version working in a in this type of environment. Jack Nicholson's might have. I don't know that he would have worked quite as well with Harley, but it's possible. Uh, Ledger's definitely would never work in in, in this in in actually in New Fifty Two. DC at all, which is what this is kind of pulled out of. Um, now, granted, people have to remember that Joker is not part of Tax Task Force X. That's also not a spoiler. He never was. You just have to open a comic book and look. This entire storyline is pretty much pulled, not to an extent, but all the little like every bits of it is comes out of the comics. So if you're not a comic reader, there are parts of this is gonna that are gonna be a struggle. I'm just gonna be flat about it because everybody I know that reads comics or really enjoys comics is loving this movie. People that don't are struggling with it. So I'm just gonna be flat honest about that. <laughs> yeah, and I, I think really when you're talking about comic based movies, to some extent it it really kind of depends on how much you are into the comic in the first place. Well, and these aren't exactly a a list characters. Uh, other than Harley Quinn and the Joker, what who what do people know? Who knows who Deadshot is? Who really knows? I know who, who Deadshot is. He was in Justice League and Justice League Unlimited. <laughs> okay, sorry. Not like this, probably. Okay, but you know what I mean. I mean, just a lot of these characters are kind of really minor, so it's 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 gonna it's, it'll be a struggle. But it's doing really well. But a lot of people are kind of eh, mixed reviews on it. So, of the live action Jokers, which one was your favorite? Jack Nicholson, but I was—I that's also the, one of the first Jokers I was exposed to. Yeah, and I'd have to say for me, it's really kind of a toss-up between the Cesar Romero or and the Jack Nicholson Jokers, because I did like the the Cesar Romero with the campy, you know, mm-hmm. the campiness, the goofiness, the trick gadgets. But I did also like the certain style and the life that Jack Nicholson brought to it where, yeah, he was kind of that perfect combination of the gold and Silver Age uh, jokers where, yeah, he was a psychotic gangster criminal, but he also had a little bit of humor to him on every now and then. And he danced to Prince. You can't go wrong. That is true. That entire soundtrack <laughs> was Prince. <laughs> that is true. So now as we close out this episode, why do you think that Joker has remained such so popular and on, on an earlier episode my friend Chad and I we did an episode called Good Bad Guys where we talked about how you know some some bad guys, some villains are more memorable than others. So why do you think Joker has, is such a good bad guy and why he's so popular. I think the fact that he's almost unbeatable is part of it. Um, Batman never really seems to totally get a handle on him. You know what I mean? Like he ended up in Arkham, but then he got out. So yeah, he, it's like they might as well just put a revolving door on Arkham, right? 
<laughs> it's like Arkham it's like, is Arkham is not like a re- apparent apparently Ar- well the mistake was letting Harley be his psychiatrist but yeah. <laughs> so I mean I would have to say I think one of the reasons Joker has remained popular over the years is because there's a Joker for everyone. I mean, some people do like that campy, over-the-top style Joker that we saw with uh, the, you know, the Cesar Romero version and the, or the cool, you know, that cool version of uh, Jack Nicholson or the, the psychotic version that Heath Ledger played or the, as from what you're describing, the, the Jared Leto version was more or less the manipulative. Mm-hmm. The fact that he can hold his own against such a badass like Batman, he also has a very distinctive style with his, you know, gag joke weapons that are very lethal and that will kill you. So I think we're going to draw this episode to the close. It's, uh, so we've been going for quite a while here and, um, I, I know we've talked about quite a lot of things during this episode. You got to learn a little bit about the history of comics and, maybe uh, learned a thing or two about the Joker. So before we end today's episode, Dawn, if people want to find you on Facebook, where can they find you? Uh, you can go on my page, which is Amethyst Dawn, which has all my like cosplay and dance and all that. And that way you can look and see what conventions I'm at and what I'm working on. So, so you have your cosplay, the Joker? No, I'm gonna, I'm doing poison Ivy though. <laughs> <laughs> So, hey, there's an idea for you. Maybe after this episode, you'll say, hey, maybe I'll go do the Joker. Well, <laughs> I, I'm sure, though, he's probably do. You, when you go to conventions, do you tend to see a lot of people cosplaying the Joker? Oh, yeah. I'm pretty sure there's going to be a million and a half Harley Quinns this year, too, at Dragon Con. <laughs> and, of course, you can find me at POIGamestudio.com. You can find me on Point of Insanity Game Studio on YouTube and on Facebook as well. So with that said, I'd like to thank you all for listening and have a good evening or morning or afternoon, whatever it is, wherever you are. And, well, didn't talk about gaming today, so not sure how to end the episode. So I guess just uh, have a good whatever. Goodbye, everyone. <laughs>